Hello there, social work. 6372-02 students. How are you all doing today? That's a weird question to ask you, right? Like, I mean, because you, you might actually answer that question. I don't know. I suspect you probably don't, but you could. You could answer that question. And if you did answer, it's not like I could hear you. So it seems like a weird thing to ask, but it also is like a force of habit, right? Like I'm I'm sitting in a room right now by myself talking into a microphone and I'm trying to make it less awkward. And one of the ways I attempted to make it less awkward is by, you know, saying something to you. Like, how you doing? So that's, that's why I do that. Uh, anyways, I'm glad you're here. We're in week number two of this 16-week semester. Y'all made it through week number one. You're back for week number two. Congratulations. I'm glad you're here. And uh, we're going to be doing a podcast lecture that hopefully you will all have time to listen to and think about before you come into class for week number two. So uh, that's the introduction that I have for you here. Let's make our introduction music come back here for a little bit. And when we come back, I have three main points that I want to get into, and we will cover each of those in turn. All right, so let's start talking about the first point that I want to get into today. The the first point that I would like to discuss with all of you is what is meant by the word clinical. I, I just did the air quote things with my fingers. You couldn't see that because this is a podcast, but I did the air quote thing when I said clinical. Uh, the Aurora University program, where you're all right now, is a clinical program. You are in a class which is trying to teach you clinical skills and clinical theories and those sorts of things, right? But what exactly does that word clinical signify? This is a, an important question, right? And the funny thing about it is, and I, I know this because I've done this, if you ask a bunch of social workers, you know, if they do clinical work, a lot of times you'll get them saying, yeah, I do. And if you ask them a follow-up question, could you, you define what clinical work is? Oh, you know, those that will attempt to do that, those who attempt to provide you with a definition, the definitions will be radically different. There won't be just like one way of defining, describing, talking about what is clinical social work. It's a word that has what I call a lot of slippage. Uh, what does slippage mean? It's a technical term. It means that uh, what it, this word means slips around depending on, you know, who you're asking and their background, what they do what their opinions are, what their experiences have been, so on and so forth, right? There's a lot of slippage with the word clinical. I bring this up because, you know, the, the, I, as I mentioned, I did this. I, I asked different people who I know who are social workers these questions. And some of it, it was interesting because, you know, some of the people I asked, they were in schools. And some of them were in schools where they're working with very young children. Others were in schools where they were working with, you know, teenagers some of them were in therapeutic day schools and some of them were in just like your your normal kind of uh, run-of-the-mill suburban school some of them were working in uh, rural areas uh, I didn't actually ask anybody who works in a school in the city when I did this um, but other people who I asked they did other things they worked in, in uh, hospitals some of them others worked in uh, private practice. They, they, you know, they had an office and people came to them and, you know, knocked on their door and said, 
I'm having a problem. Can I talk to you about it? And uh, they did. They came in and they talked about it. So I, I talked to people in different ways. And this is something I mentioned in the very first podcast lecture I did for this class. You know, social work is a, a profession or a discipline that does a lot of different things. It does so many different things. So if you talk to somebody and they say that they're a social worker, you don't know exactly what that means. You don't know exactly what they do. You have to ask follow-up questions to figure that out. You have to say, like, what kind of social worker are you? Um, you know, I, I guess probably the same thing is true with, with other people like doctors or lawyers. Like if somebody says they're a lawyer, they may be a prosecutor, they may be a defense attorney, they may practice family law, they, they could do a bunch of different things. And doctors, of course, it's all sorts of specialties. Like, you know, I had to take my kid to the eye doctor uh, just the other day, right? And so an eye doctor is a certain kind of doctor, an ophthalmologist. Uh, that's different than if you're taking them to a podiatrist, which deals with feet. Uh, but they're all doctors, right? You know, so it's, it's interesting. Social work has the same thing. Here's the difference, though, which I think is really interesting. No one would say that the American medical profession has an identity crisis, even though, you know, doctors do, an orthopedic doctor is different than a cardiothoracic doctor, is different than an endocrinologist doctor uh, and all that, but they're all doctors. And everybody accepts that. Everybody's like, yeah, totally, because doctors are doing medical things, right? That, that's That's the idea there. Social workers, though, um, you know, who do all these different things, they're seen as having an identity crisis. Isn't, don't you think that that's interesting? Because I think that that's interesting, you know, that that in one profession where there's lots of kind of like various sort of subspecialties or subprofessions within a larger profession, the medical profession, no problem. In social work, where you have that, it's like, oh, they have an identity crisis. I think that that's fascinating that, that that's the way that it is. Uh, maybe that's something we can talk about when we meet as a class. I, if you, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, yeah, that's a good point, you know, think about it some more and come to class with some observations that you might have. Come to class with some questions and comments and those sorts of things, so we can keep that conversation going because that would be fun, I think. But anyways, that was a, a call to sack. I went down. I didn't know I was going to talk about that, but I ended up talking about that. Sorry about that. I'm actually not sorry about that, but <laughs> whatever. I'm just going to keep on going here. A little bit weird. A little bit slap happy today. Um, clinical social workers, clinical social workers do all these different things. You got to ask a social worker, what is it that you do? What kind of social worker are you in order to figure that kind of thing out? Uh, and a lot of social workers that are doing different things might describe themselves as clinical. Not every social worker describes themselves as clinical. There's sometimes when I've, I've done this exercise where I've asked people these questions, you know, some people say, oh, I'm not clinical. I do case management or I'm not clinical. I do, uh, something else, right? And, and it's, it's just really, really interesting to me when, when they say this because I'll, I'll ask them, well, why don't you think that that's clinical? And it seems like sometimes they think that clinical work has to involve like providing some kind of a formal diagnosis and a treatment plan and then attempting to like, you know, address the problem that the diagnosis presents through kind of following the treatment plan and, and anything that varies from that is not clinical work. What I'm going to ask everybody to do to consider here is two things. First thing, um, a lot of work that social workers do is clinical because it is aimed at trying to address really pressing, important, significant problems that occur at multiple levels. One level is the micro level, the individual. And it kind of grows from there. We can go from individuals. We can do social workers work with individual people. They will work with couples. They will work with families. 
They will work with groups. They will work with um, uh, small groups sometimes or, or large groups other times. Uh, and sometimes they'll do, social workers will do things where they're working with an entire like culture or society. So like people who do big policy macro level social work, uh, that's something where you could, I don't know if they would agree with me, those, those social workers who do this, but I think you could argue that a lot of what they're doing is clinical in nature. I say that because what they're doing is they're attempting to diagnose the uh, something that's going on within a society, something like toxic masculinity or systemic racism, for example. These are these are diagnoses. They're not officially diagnoses that you find in the DSM, of course, right? But I think that that is a diagnosis of a problem that is being experienced in society, and they do maybe not make treatment plans, but they make policies. And those policies are ways that they're going to try to address the uh, problem which they have diagnosed in the society, right? And, and all that. So that's the first thing I wanted to toss out there. This, if, if we take this very broad idea of clinical social work and we apply the broadest possible definition to it, I think we could make an argument that everybody who's hearing this right now and all of our social worker friends are probably doing some form of clinical work. Now, of course, you don't have to adopt that kind of big, broad definition if you don't want to. That's a suggestion. It's not a demand. Um, and if you think it would be a bad idea to address, to adopt that kind of a big definition of clinical, come to class and tell me why. Because I'd really be interested in hearing why. If you think it's a good idea, same thing. Come to class, tell me why. I'd really like to hear your thoughts and opinions on that. So that was the first thing that I was going to say. The second thing. Uh, and this is more of an observation, something that I want to point out. Uh, and this has to do with one of the kind of like goals that I have for this class. One of the things that I really hope I can encourage everybody to do in this class is to engage in what I'm going to call a rigorous self-reflection on a very consistent basis. What do I mean by that? So happy that you asked me that question. Thanks for asking. Um, so a self-reflection is looking at ourselves and seeing kind of like what gets reflected back at us. If we, if, if I look at me, what do I see? That's, that's what you're doing here. Now we might do this a lot of times in a lightweight kind of a way, you know, I'm suggesting that one of the things that is a really good idea is for social workers to do this in a really serious, very purposeful um, way on a very consistent basis as opposed to doing it in kind of like lightweight way or doing it in, in an inconsistent way. I, I think that reflecting on who we are and where we're going, which is something that I mentioned in the first podcast lecture, you know, when I talked about principles, are, are we getting closer to our principles? Are we getting farther from our principles? If we're getting closer, why? If we're getting farther away, why? These, these are the sorts of questions that I think we should be asking as often as we possibly can. All right. I think this is really important. If one of our principles is to do good clinical work, clinical again in the broad sense, diagnosing a problem that exists either anywhere from the individual to the society that we live in, the world that we live in, and, and then attempting to come up with a way that we might uh, adequately address, treat that particular diagnosed issue, that, that ill, that problem, then we're going to need to very frequently be engaging in this rigorous self-reflection and, and, and really honestly trying to determine if we're, we're doing it well or if we're doing it in a way that isn't so great. And, and that is a really important thing. And, uh, you know, I brought this up once 
And somebody asked me a good question. They said, well, do you think that all social workers should engage in that rigorous process of self-reflection? Or do you think that it's maybe more important for, you know, some particular form of social workers to be doing that? And my answer was no, but I think that, that it isn't about the particular social worker, that it, this is a universal thing that universally that I would prefer social workers to do that I would, I would ask social workers to do. Again, I can't make them do this. That's the thing about self-reflection. You can't make somebody do it, but you can ask them to. And the reason I would ask everybody, regardless of whatever area of social work they're working in, focus on, that sort of thing, is because no matter what area of social work you go into, if you're working with individual people, uh, maybe you're super specific. You work with individuals ages, you know, 10 to 16 or, or something like that, right? That's that's one thing. Or if you're somebody who's doing macro level practice and you're working with these big policies that affect huge, huge, huge numbers of people, um, you are the person who's doing the work that you're doing. And that is why it is going to be really important for you to look at you. It is going to be important for you to really, you know, do this thing where you, you ask yourself, the question on a regular basis, who am I and where am I going? And that's those, those two questions. I'm going to say something about those in the, in the next point that I'm going to make, but we're going to play some music here. I'm going to come back. I'm going to tell you a short story when we come back. So get ready for that. ready for a story because I've got a story for you. Uh, this story is a story I tell in a bunch of different classes because I, I talk about this idea of rigorous self-reflection in multiple classes that I teach. And the story is a really good way to talk about it, I think. So here, let me set the stage for you. This story takes place in the first century. So, uh, and it takes place in Jerusalem during the Roman occupation of that city. Here's what's going on. Uh, the Roman Empire has taken over Jerusalem, and uh, the people who live there have not taken kindly to that, and there have been numerous attempts to rebel against the the big power that is Rome, you know, to kind of make them leave and go back home. And a lot of the rebellions have been started by people who are leaders within the Jewish community. Uh, a lot of the people who are leaders within the Jewish community are rabbis, and the Romans have decided that one of the ways to try to make less rebellions happen is to do two things. One is no more rabbis, make it uh, illegal to do to be a rabbi, and the second thing is to create a really intense curfew where no one can be out after dark because it turns out that people were. I, I guess the at the time, uh, I don't know if this is right or not. The Romans thought that anybody who was up to mischief would, you know, gather with their fellow mischief makers after dark. They wouldn't gather during the day. No, that wouldn't happen. Uh, so that's, that's setting up the story here. So even though the Romans had outlawed being a rabbi, there were people who were still being rabbis. And there was this one guy, his name was Akiva, and he was a rabbi. And even though it was not allowed to be a rabbi, he continued to be a rabbi. He continued to, like, you know, read the important spiritual texts of that faith and teach people and so on and so forth. So one day, you know, Rabbi Akiva, he wakes up, he leaves his house and he goes and he does his rabbi stuff. 
he goes somewhere, he reads, he thinks, he you know teaches, so on and so forth. He's doing all, all of his things. And you know, I get I the way the story goes is he he started thinking about something, something important to him. And, you know, he's really mulling it over. He was thinking about it a lot. He was like, oh, what does this mean? And this is an important concept. I need to understand it. And really thinking, thinking, thinking. And he got so lost in thought and so much time went by that by the time he kind of like came to uh, and and looked, you know, out the window of the, the place he was in, he realized it was dark. And he was like, oh, that's not good. It's dark. I'm not supposed to be out after dark, but I got to get home. <sighs> well... I'm just going to risk it, right? And so he he leaves the place he's at and uh, starts walking home. And of course, this is first century Jerusalem, so there's no streetlights. He's walking, he's walking. And, and whatever it was that he was thinking about earlier, it's still on his mind and he's still kind of thinking about it. He's distracted. He's he's thinking this and like so on and so forth. And he ended, ends up walking right into a group of Roman centurions that are camped out like on, a, on the road he's walking down. And, you know, these are the, this is the occupying force. This is the, the group of people who have set up a curfew and said, don't be out after dark. This is the group of people who said, you're not allowed to be a rabbi. And here's this guy who's being a rabbi and he's out after dark. He's like breaking two of their, their rules. And the Romans didn't take particularly kindly to people breaking their rules, by the way. Uh, the Romans, if they caught people breaking their rules, they would, they'd punish them harshly by doing things like killing them, right? That, that was a thing that would happen. So anyways, uh, this young Roman soldier sees Akiva before, well, he's, you know, wandering, thinking, and uh, he sticks his spear in Akiva's face. And he says to Akiva, hey, you, who are you? Where are you going? And this startles Rabbi Akiva. He's taken out of his reverie, out of his his thinking. And uh, he he looks at the the Roman centurion kid with the spear in his in, in his hands and the spears that, that he's sticking into Akiva's face. And, and Akiva asks the kid, "Hey kid, how much are they paying you?" And this question surprises the kid. He doesn't expect this guy who has a spear in his face to ask him that question. He's the one. The, the Roman kid's like like the supposed to be the one asking the question. So then, then this old old guy who's out after dark like you're not supposed to and looks a lot like a rabbi, maybe, is asking him questions, what? But he's taken aback. And uh, he tells Akiva, uh, they, they pay me like 10 denaries to you know, hang out here and watch the road. And Akiva goes, okay, 10 denaries. That's not bad. But here's the deal. Let me, let, me, let me make you an offer. I will double that. I will give you 20 denaries. If you will come and find me like once a day, and, and ask me those same two questions. Surprise me with those two questions every day. And I'll, and I'll pay you 20 denarii each time you do it. And that's the story. Now, the, the story is a weird story. Here's the point of it. Akiva, you know, in the story, recognized that these two questions, who are you and where are you going? That these are important questions that somebody should ask themselves on a regular basis. You know, another way you could say this is it's important to ask ourselves, what kind of person am I? Whenever, like, so right now I'm sitting in this room talking into this microphone, what kind of person am I as I'm doing this? I'm, I could ask that question and, and answer it, but I'm going to spare you my, what would be a long-winded answer? You know, it, it's an important question. And in what path am I going down? What direction am I taking my life in? What sort of, am I moving closer to my principles or am I moving further away from them? 
who am I? What sort of person am I? And where am I going? Am I getting closer to the kind of person I want to be? Or am I getting further away from that person? Another way you could ask this in a more professional way is what kind of social worker am I? And what kind of social worker am I becoming? So, so Akiva first recognized that those were two really important questions. But he also recognized, he asked the kid you know, who put a spear in his face to come and find him and ask him those two questions because even though he should be asking those questions a lot, even though he should be engaging in rigorous self-reflection as often as one can, he gets busy. And when you get busy, you forget to do that. You forget to ask yourself, who am I? And where am I going? You don't, those questions don't cross your mind because when you're, you know, at the store trying to get the milk or something, but probably they don't because you're busy at the, you're, you're at the store trying to get the milk. You don't think about that kind of thing at that moment, but it's an important question. It's a good question to ask. It's a question we should be asking. Uh, so the reason I tell you this story is a part of this podcast is one, to illustrate just how important those questions are and to illustrate how useful they are for rigorous self-reflection. And also two, to encourage all of you who are hearing this right now, who are listening to my voice, to you know, ask yourself those questions as often as you can think to, and you know, ask other, ask me those questions. You know, hey, Gorman, who are you right now? Where are you going? I ask that. You're somebody else in the class. Hey, other person in the class, who are you? Where are you going? Yeah, somebody at your internship might be advantageous to ask them that question. I don't know. So let's just say one more time, these questions, who are you, where are you going, important questions, ask them, ask them, ask them, ask yourself, ask other people, ask them. That's part two of this podcast lecture. Going into the last part of this podcast lecture, what I want to do is start talking about ethics. Now, I'm going to start talking about it here in the podcast lecture, but we're going to talk a lot more about it when we meet as a class. This is just kind of getting us started. It's not going to be exhaustive. Uh, where I'm, I'm hoping that this bit that I'm about to do on ethics will get you starting to think about ethics in a way that's interesting and useful. So here's the, the way that I want to describe this. Uh, you'll notice that on your Moodle page for today, for this, this week's class, there are two things that you are supposed to take a look at. They're both the NASW Code of Ethics, but one of them is from the year 1960. You'll notice that that one is a pretty short Code of Ethics. The second one is the version of the Code of Ethics which was revised in 2017. It's not that long ago. And you'll notice it's a lot larger than the one that they wrote in 1960. And uh, one of the questions that I'm going to have for all of you, and I mean this here, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to get you to think about something. If you look at both of these Codes of Ethics, which one do you find more useful? I'm going to highlight that word, useful. Look at them both and then ask yourself which one of these is more useful to you. Follow that up and try to tell me why the one you picked is useful. Try to try to talk about that. Try to have some reasons as to why you chose whichever one you chose. 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've done this exercise before. And I don't know what you're all going to say. Sometimes people find the 1961 more useful. Sometimes people find the 2017 one more useful. A lot of times in a, a class of this size, there'll be people who find, it'll be split, right? Some people will find the 61 more useful. Other people will find the 2017 one more useful. And that's all fine. That's all good. Uh, there isn't a right answer to this question. It's an opinion that I'm asking you. I'm asking you to tell me which one you think, based off of your experiences so far, which one you think would be the most useful to you and why you think it would be useful to you, okay? So that's what I want you to do when you read these things. The second thing I want to talk about in relation to ethics is something that I think is really important, but it's not said as often as I would like it to be. When you look at these codes, both the one from 1960 and the one from 2017, one of the things that you'll notice is that they are more like maps than they are like recipes. What do I mean by that? A map, if you think about it, is a tool that you can use. You can kind of find where you are on a map. And then if you want to get to a different place, you can use the map to kind of figure out which way is the best course to get there. But the map doesn't tell you exactly which course to take. All right, it, it leaves that up to you, the person using the map. So if you're trying to get, I don't know, from, uh, from Chicago to San Diego, it'd be a long journey. There's a lot of ways you can take. Um, you can take a way which takes you sort of like a northern route, you know, which would take you through states like Iowa and Colorado, Utah. Let me think here. What else would you go through? Um, probably Nevada and California. I think that's all the states you'd go for. Then you can also take a southern route, which would take you through very many southern states. Uh, they're, they're both ways to get from Chicago to San Diego or from San Diego to Chicago. If you were going to make that journey, you could pick you know, either of those paths, and they'd both get you from point A to point B. You could, and I'm, I want to emphasize this a lot, you could choose which path you want to take. Because sometimes you know, just where you end up, that, that is an important thing. If you are leaving Chicago and you want to arrive in San Diego, getting to San Diego, that's important. But it's also important how you do it. It's important what path you take, which, which, um, cause that'll, that'll influence your experience of getting there. And, and that'll influence how you feel when you get there. And I'm using this all as a metaphor, you know, for like life and stuff. When people, come to social workers, they usually come to social workers and the place they're in is like problem place. And what they want is for the social worker to take them to a different place that is not this problem place that they're in. Sometimes they don't know where they want to go. Sometimes they do. Um, they're going to ask you to do things, say things. You're going to make choices about how you intervene. And the code of ethics is actually a map. It's something and it's one map. I, I don't think it's the only map you can use. Theory as a map, for example. You could use, you could use a psychological theory. Uh, you could use systems theory. You could use the ecological perspective. Those are maps. What you're going to do when you're working with people is grab a bunch of maps and use those maps to kind of be a bit of a cartographer, um, you know, your own sort of like interpreter maker of maps, and you're going to chart your course and you're going you're gonna to follow it. But um, none of these things, theories, codes of ethics, uh, are going to tell you exactly how to do things, right? They're, they're tools that give you options 
and there's a, usually quite a few options that come with them. These are different than recipes, or actually, this is probably a better way to say it, different than just like if you you uh, have your GPS tell you what to do and you do exactly what it tells you, turn when it tells you to turn and you drive where it tells you to drive. You don't think about it. You're not, you, the GPS is the thing that maybe, you know, looks at maps and then makes the choices for you. The, the code of ethics is not that. Uh, it is not a GPS system. It's never been a GPS system. I think you'll realize that when you look at the code that goes all the way back to 1960 and you compare it to the code that is, right, the code we have now um, that was last revised in 2017. It's not like GPS. It's not like a recipe that tells you use exactly this amount of an ingredient, put it in in this order, right? The, the recipes and GPS are extremely prescriptive things. They tell you what to do, when to do it. And a lot of people who use those enjoy that because it, it means they don't have to make choices. They can just sort of, if they follow the recipe, if they follow the GPS, they'll get where they're going. Uh, the, but <laughs> what I'm arguing, I think, is that... Uh, just following directions is not something which is going to constitute really impactful, really meaningful, really powerful, really important work. That's what I'm saying. I think if you want to do that kind of work, the good stuff, you're going to have to use more maps and less GPS. You're going to have to cultivate your own ability to make decisions, ethical decisions, appropriate decisions, clinical decisions. There's that word clinical again. Uh, you're going to have to cultivate that. I think that one of the things I want to do in this class, and what I, which I hope you'll get not only in this class, but throughout your whole time uh, here at this university learning about social work, is that you'll be acquiring a lot of different maps, maps that you can use to make good choices. Your, your ethics map, that's a map that can help you move from where you are to where you want to be in an ethical way. Uh, there's going to be other maps that you use in different ways, but they're maps. They're not a GPS system. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Now, another way to think about this, if you want to, is, and this is a bit of a review from something we talked about in earlier podcast, uh, is maps help us with our principles, right? Uh, our principles can pop up on maps and we can use maps to figure out if we're getting closer or further away from them. We can use the code of ethics, for example, to see if we're moving closer or further from our principles. We can use theoretical maps to uh, do the same thing, right? But that, that's, how, that's how maps help us. Now, if we don't have principles, we're gonna, it's going to be harder to use the map. I, at least that's what I think. So, so far here in this class, I've introduced a couple of different concepts to you. The concept of principles is a very important concept. You're, this isn't the last you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear about it again and again and probably again and then some more. Uh, the, I, the concept of maps is another one. You're going to hear about maps pretty regularly too, right? And ethics. Ethics is something that we'll be returning to periodically throughout the course. Uh, actually coming up, going into next week, we're going to do a whole big assignment all about ethics. So get ready for that. Um, I don't think I have anything else to say. So yeah, I've, I've said enough things. This has been the second podcast lecture for this class. Hopefully you found it interesting and useful. I really hope that you have, and I will be seeing you all in class soon. Until then, make some glorious mistakes. <laughs> <laughs>